football is back, and right now Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last, or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. We've got wall-to-wall Premier League football, with games being played nearly every day, and with Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals, and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch all the games live with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. Is Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I say! Brilliant! He's round the goalkeeper, he's done it! Absolutely incredible! He launched himself six feet into the crowd and Kung Fu kicked a supporter who was without a shadow of a doubt giving him lip. Oh, I say! It's amazing! He does it tame and tame and tame again. Break up the music! Charge a glass! Does Coleman really rhyme with goal man Martin Tyler? Where does the real Roy Keane end and the box office Roy Keane begin? Are there any managers left who haven't managed Middlesbrough? And how far back in time would you need to go to cut it as a professional footballer? Brought to your ears by The Athletic, this is Football Clichés. To celebrate the return of the Premier League, we're offering 40% off a subscription with The Athletic for a limited time only. Go to theathletic.com forward slash clichés pod to sign up for less than £3 a month. That's theathletic.com forward slash cliches pod. Cliches names an unchanged lineup this week. Uh, Charlie Akasha, you join us again. How are you doing? I'm very well. How are you? I'm not too bad. Did you enjoy the two goal thriller at, at the new White Hart Lane this week? Uh, yeah, it was all right. Uh, it wasn't a classic game, but got over the line. And I've spoken before about how 2 0 is my favourite <laughs> yeah. result. And, and I was associated with Mourinho team. So I guess it was, it was satisfying from, from that respect. There was the genuine tidiness to it, I agree. Uh, mm. Speaking of genuine tidiness, here is Jack Pitbrook. You're with us again. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm fine, thanks, Adam. How are you? Yeah, not bad. Um, suffering in the heat, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to brave through it. Before we get onto these burning issues of this week, I, I feel like we, we, we should discuss this this moment that I picked up on in, in the Merseyside derby on Sky a few days ago. This is Martin Tyler at perhaps what I believe is, is peak Martin Tyler. Coma with a throw. Who's going to be the goal man tonight, though? Maybe Sadio Mane. <laughs> now, of course, Martin Tyler will go to his grave being remembered for the Sergio Aguero moment, but I feel like I feel like this might be the typical Tyler delivery, which is kind of presenting one concept and then and then really awkwardly in a granddad kind of way moulding it into something that a little bit sounds like that concept and uh, rhyming Coleman with Goldman. It took me a while to actually get it. Uh, like I did have to listen to it a couple of times because it, mm. it, I, I didn't straight away get the link. And maybe because Goldman isn't really something that's ever said <laughs> might, <laughs> might have added to my confusion. I mean, that's like sticks, man. This is what Tyler does a lot. He kind of talks about one thing and then his attention sort of strays a bit. This was the, the biggest ever TV audience for a Premier League game. With all the kind of arrangements that have been made, this was the this is the biggest audience a Premier League match has ever had on TV. Perhaps we should allow for a bit of rustiness with our commentators as well as our players, Jack. Yeah, there was a moment in the uh, in the Spurs game against Man United where kind of towards the end and somebody played a short pass to 
Moose and Sissoko, and he tried to control it, and the ball ended up literally like 15 yards away, and he had to sprint after it to go and get it. And of course, it's easy, it's easy to laugh at that sort of thing, but there hasn't <laughs> been any there hasn't been any football for 15 weeks. I'm sure when I first mm. go to a game back, I will be very very rusty in my yep. in my methods, and so I think it, with your intros and your uh, yeah yeah. So I think we should yeah. all afford we should all afford the great Martin Tyler a bit of leeway in his. Uh, I completely agree. I think of him as being untouchable. I love Martin Tyler. and <laughs> just think he's yep. so so good, and he seems to be getting quite a lot of criticism these days, which which saddens me a bit. Yeah, I've well, been, so, I, I, you should always allow him a a, a dad joke. I think that yeah. is perfectly suitable for a man of knocking on for seventy five. Something I love about Martin Tyler is he as he does he clearly does quite a lot of re- reporting, like subtle reporting. Like he has good relationships with lots of players and managers, and sometimes he shows up at press conferences to ask questions, even though he doesn't you know, especially need to. He does it out of curiosity. And often in his commentary, he'll ju- he'll drop in things that he's he knows or things that he's been told. Mm. Not in a kind of like uh, there's no kind of self-aggrandizement about it at all. It's just it's just there to inform the viewers, and it's uh, it's a really like effective way of doing informed commentary. Yeah, it's that's true. It's really subtle, isn't it? He did one about um, like the City team. I mean, he was talking about how during the City Arsenal game, City had definitely been getting the message out that they were going to be undercooked, and yeah, he speculated on whether that had been a kind of deliberate diversionary tactic, which I thought was quite interesting. Well, fortunately for uh, for Tyler, that that um, four out of ten a uh, piece of wordplay was rather overshadowed by another bit of notable Sky broadcasting, which was Roy Keane's epic rant, which is, I believe, I'm obliged to de- to describe it. This was um, Spurs versus United the other day, and I want to talk about it from two angles, really. First of all, we need to talk about. Keen specifically, but we also need to talk about punditry generally because every time something like this happens, it opens up this metaphysical debate about what punditry really should be and what it means and how much we should really care about it. But Keen specifically, we should refresh our memories with this clip because every time I listen to it, I hear something else. Um, but crucially, every time I listen to it, I'm, I'm convinced more that this is that um, this is Keen being genuine. Spurs have done okay; they've been compact and mm. listen, they've been okay. But Man United, Maguire and De Gea. I wouldn't even let them on the bus after the match. I get a taxi back to Manchester. (laughs) These are established international players and we're all sitting here and I know we have to analyse the game. Analyse it till the cows come home. You do your job. We're trying to get in the top four. Not win leagues, by the way. We're just talking about getting the top four. God forbid about winning trophies. Shocking. I am. I am disgusted with it. Maguire, De Gea, you should hang your heads in shame. Represent Man United and letting people run past you. Get close to people. Move your feet. Right, Jack. Let's let's start right at the very beginning here with this. Do you buy this as Roy Keane, or or, or is this Roy Keane acting like Roy Keane? I don't think this is Roy Keane putting on a show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this is Roy Keane being authentically who he is. Roy Keane has existed in British and Irish football consciousness for thirty years now. He is very, very uncompromising, vocal, clear. Oh no, I don't have clear the right word. He's a very like he tell he tells it how he sees it, and he doesn't spare mm-hmm. any fools. And I don't think he's putting this on. I don't think he's like he's adopting this like performative character for money. I don't think he's like Jeremy Clarkson pretending to be very <laughs> right wing and obnoxious. You know what I mean? Like I think yeah. I think he is genuine. So uh, Miguel Delaney wrote a good piece about this for the Independent. He's obviously you know kn- knows an awful lot about Keane and hmm. knows pe- knows people who are very close to him and. 
And he wrote that, you know, it's not an act. This is who Keane was. This is who he was as a manager, where famously he, you know, he hasn't really been as successful a manager in the modern era as people expected he would be. And I think in part that's because of the way that he speaks. He's just so direct and sometimes it has the wrong way of, it rubs it rubs players up the wrong way. But I don't think he's putting on a show. Charlie, if we have made peace with the fact that this was indeed Roy Keane being genuinely Roy Keane, the second consideration is, 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 is this good punditry? Or is it bad punditry? Or or does it actually matter? Um, if if he's being true to himself, isn't this isn't that the best form of punditry we could hope for? Yeah, I'm I am a bit conflicted on this. Uh, my my initial reaction, and I didn't see it live because I was at the game, so I, I mm. did watch it. Um, you know, packaged up as kind of box office Roy Keane. Keane goes yes. on epic rant, and maybe that presentation of it slightly biased me against it because it, it felt like it was more of that. Uh, kind of cynical uh, let's make this about Roy Keane mm-hmm. going on an epic rant again I maybe don't find that that interesting just because n- none of it surprises me yeah. you know does I, I know from having read uh, Keane's first book and just from you know of, uh, just seeing him that he is extremely uncompromising uh, sets ridiculously high standards uh, and is a very interesting character for that but I also find Patrice Evra very interesting when he was on Monday Night Football you lose him obviously he, he's overshadowed so you know I think for, for a lot of people they that that the majority of people are going to find that entertaining uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I feel and again I'm conscious that I, I, I'm by no means speaking for everyone here but I feel it's a bit of a regressive step given how much guys like Gary Neville, Jamie Carragher and Patrice Evra have raised the bar to then make it this slightly more cartoony uh, sort of vibe to me is less appealing. And and I also think just for someone like David De Gea, I, I just don't know how fair that really was. I mean, you know, Keane uh, knows far more about United and the standards that should be expected but you were saying that he'd have been swinging punches and, and this kind of thing. It is really entertaining. Um, and yeah, as we're saying, we think it is genuine. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't, I'm not that keen on it personally, but yeah, look, I'm, it gets huge numbers of views and it's a massive talking point, you know, however many day, almost a week on, we're still talking about it. So it clearly works. But yeah, I, I just think personally, I get more from guys like Neville, Carragher and, and Evera. Um, and it it does just become a little bit of a one man show, um, which if there was if there was that helpful. If, if there was a consensus about this this kind of little rant, Jack, it was that it was that in at some level it was a form of entertainment. And whilst I can completely understand that Sky would go to town with it on their social media and they call it box office Roy Keane, and 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 they they got a tweet out with that clip within. It felt like a couple of minutes, and and I can I completely sympathise with that because it's good it's good value for them. But what I'm what I'm what I'm only slightly troubled by, and I, I use that word lightly, is that even if it was Roy Keane being perfectly genuine, I refuse to believe that he's not aware of this phenomenon, this this phenomenon of, of viral punditry that could be out there. He's not immune from the feedback. Even Roy Keane, even this this almost parodical figure. That he may have come in, become in certain people's eyes. I refuse to believe he wouldn't be aware of people enjoying this on Twitter, and therefore the next time he goes and does a Man United match, he's probably going to do it again with that in the back of his mind. So surely, surely the, he, the myth is feeding back into the real thing, isn't it? 
Yeah, I think that's probably a fair point. Although I think that if there's anyone, if there's almost anyone in modern football who wouldn't really care about how many retweets they were getting, it would be Roy <laughs> Keane. Like, I, yeah, sure. Um, I'm so, I think he, I mean, look, he's probably conscious of like his bookability to an extent, mm-hmm. and but I think his bookability is through the roof. Like you would, you would always get him on. I think he, but you, yeah, he like he must know that this is the direction things are heading. I think so. Going to plug another piece. Jonathan Lou wrote a good piece in the Guardian about mm. exactly this, saying that he feels that after you know a, a generation or so in which punditry has moved towards explanation, it's now moving towards entertainment. That is to say. It is, you know, the punditry is meant to be interesting and shareable and viral in itself. It wasn't a completely throwaway thing. He 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 has a vested interest in Man United being good or bad. He, by all accounts, he's very close to Solskjaer. So the his irritation at, at David de Gea's level of performance uh, isn't just genuine. He 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 wants to convey it he he that that was his take on the situation he he was never going to provide us with a breakdown of how goalkeepers should deal with that situation because he's never been a goalkeeper so if anything that that was the best he could have provided at that moment wasn't it i guess the pro- slight issue though which jack alludes to there and social media obviously the whole algorithm is geared towards having extreme views uh and so we you know that's what it is really it's it, you yeah, know, it, it promotes. No, no one gets retweets or likes for you know, off, you know, a kind of middle of the road opinion. And I don't. Know, I feel like you, you have that enough on social media. Do we need punditry to also take a, a step in that direction as well? Given that you know, I think Sky have been really successful in in, in raising the bar in that way. I, I guess yeah. they would argue that you know, you get if you want your kind of deep analysis, you'll get that on Monday Night Football with Carragher and Neville. So there's a bit for everyone, and and maybe that's right. Maybe that's fair. We should also give him his dues. He's actually quite good at delivering that sort of rant this this wasn't aimless he, he was he was very controlled in a, and I suppose that's what we're familiar with Roy Keane as, as a player most of the time he could control that fury and channel it into into being very effective and I think I feel like that's what his punditry equivalent does quite well if you break down a, a keen rant he basically he declares his emotion with what he's seeing straight away. So he's saying, I'm flabbergasted. You know, I'm staggered. What I really like about his rants is he holds up a player's credentials almost to their face and says, you want to be a Manchester United player? You're the best goalkeeper in the world. And then he sort of holds that up against them and, say, and then basically just says, no, not really. And then, <laughs> and then angrily issues his instruction about what they should have done in that very situation. And I, I think it's just a very well-structured rant, but it's also very surprisingly high-pitched. We don't associate high-pitched voices with being threatening, but in his case, I feel like it genuinely does put you on the edge of your seat. And Everett and, and Kelly Cates, the presenter, were kind of sort of nervously laughing. Again, I'm conflicted here, Jack. I don't know if that's the kind of reaction I'm, I, I want from my from my other studio pundits. Should they not be sort of taking him on? Should they not be addressing the points he's making? I don't know. I don't know. One of the best criticisms I saw of Keane was that, you know, is this the kind of attitude that you would want your children to be watching, for example? And I can see yeah. I can see where that's coming from, although personally, yeah. I, personally, I enjoyed it and I thought it was fun. And funny. I do think a lot of it just stems from, like Charlie was saying, from standards. Like this kind of anger you sometimes get from the very, very best players that other players simply aren't as good as them. Or is, I mean, yeah. in some cases, it's because they're not as talented as them, and in other cases, because they're not as motivated as them. And I think with Roy Keane, it's probably a bit of both. It's like it's like the kind of famous story about Roberto Mancini being furious that James Milner couldn't see the passes that he could see, or. Glenn Hoddle taking the piss out of people in training <laughs> when he when he was England manager at France '98 because he was still better than them. 
Mm. And I think that, I think that you know it's it's not every great player makes a great manager. And while Keane is like wired slightly differently, I think from some great players, you can kind of see you can see a sense of why it didn't quite work out for him when you see him on these epic rants. I do just wonder as well, and at the risk of sounding very left liberal snowflake, but. Is someone like De Gea just completely fair game? I mean, to have someone saying that if he were in the dressing room, he'd have been throwing punches at him, to me feels a bit extreme. And in an age where someone like Keane is extremely influential, is that a step too far or is that okay to to say that, to, to basically be endorsing the fact that his teammates should have been attacking him in the dressing room for making what seemed to me like a fairly... You know, it was an error, but it yeah, wasn't I would, an error would, born out of arrogance. So, you know, if he'd been like <laughs> trying stepovers and got tackled, that would be one thing. But it's it's just an error, isn't it? To, to say that that merits being punched it feels to me a bit extreme. But again, uh, I'm probably I, I not his know. audience. I don't know about that. I, I, I understand your, your sentiment there. Um, I don't know if we're going to have to have some sort of certificate rating for punditry these days. A lot of people also said that, you know, this is this is exactly how Keane would have reacted if he'd been in that dressing room. This 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 was in one way or another some sort of insight because this is how this is a window into how Roy Keane would have reacted if he had been there a little story that popped up right in the middle of Ollie Kay's epic Liverpool 30 years of hurt piece was a story from Lee Sharp's autobiography the Liverpool Spice Boys team were out in 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 orderly edge and they and they they ran into the, the Man United players in a bar and uh he claimed that that Roy Keane launched into this incredible tirade uh, picking out the Liverpool players one by one. And it, and it went pretty much like this. He went, you, Bab, fuck off back to Coventry. Redknapp, what the fuck have you ever done in the game? You, Scales, you fucking rubbish with your England B cap. Picking out John Scales for his one single England B cap <laughs> might be the most cutting thing I've ever heard. In, 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 you know, in the kind of low-key kind of way. Just That just sounds wonderful. I'd never heard that story before. And at least he's kind of being fairly consistent. I also, Jack, I do prefer it I prefer angry snippets of punditry every now and then to what Paul Scholes used to provide on BT, which was this kind of abject misery, this kind of sort of sneering, kind of dismissive, isn't Mourinho rubbish when he was when he was at Old Trafford. I kind of prefer it to that. I prefer it to kind of just downbeat misery, don't you? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, like you've got to have, you know, an epic rant has to have a bit of direction. I just find Scholes would just, he wouldn't really say enough. It would just be like a sentence or two at a time. Whereas Keane really takes you on a journey. He really brings you into his anger. That story about the Liverpool players in a bar is incredible. That's one of the reasons why I don't think it's an act and why I get annoyed when people say, oh, Roy Keane putting it on for the cameras. Mm. Like a lot, you've got to realise like a lot of these people, these, it's like when people say, oh, Pep Guardiola's putting it on for the cameras when he like berates Raheem Sterling or even Nathan Redmond after a game. Like the, these people are incredibly intense and driven. I don't really think mm. they're thinking about their own virality at, mo- at, mm. at moments like this. I think they're thinking no, that's about fine. their obsession with the game. I just, I, I just genuinely also think that Roy Keane is also able to be egged on. You, you, you can egg on Roy Keane. Yeah, I don't I'm think sure he, you can. I don't think he's, he, he's purely on his own terms. I also, That's... I also, I also think it's, it's worth pointing out that um, just before football locked down back in March, I, he was in the studio with, with Michael Richards, and Michael Richards was talking about how he burst onto the scene as a defender, and, and suddenly Roy Keane sort of his face kind of just sort of turned into this wry little smile so he's got this kind of playful side oh yeah and by some accounts he's genuinely really funny to be around and he picked up on he picked up on michael richard saying that he said he said can defenders burst onto the scene and he said he sort of <laughs> doubted him and it, and it was really funny so he was he was kind of channeling that kind of 
Channing is in Adam Hurry, it sounds like. Yeah, it was that's, a little bit. It was genuine that's the sort of thing. Yeah, that would be put to you on Twitter. Can a defender kind of right back burst onto the High scene? standards, both of us. It's very important. Um, so yeah. he's, got a, he's got a genuinely playful side, I think. Is that the point that, you know, sh- would it be more interesting to see more of that side of him and, uh, you know, get a, a more varied Roy Keane, I, I don't suppose, think that's rather... what people want. I don't think that's what yeah, people want. No. And we, we, should, we, should, we should accept market forces here. I, and mm. insight is one thing, and we can talk about that as well. But uh, I think in the 10 or 11 minutes that Sky probably have to chat about a game at, at the most at half time, I think that's a perfectly good little entertaining snippet of someone really caring about what they're talking about while you scroll through your Twitter feed or you go make a cup of tea and and that sort of stuff. So I don't I don't think half time is really where I want to get my insight anyway. It's um, it's not a particularly interesting point of the game. And the whole debate about Keane's Keane's authenticity and what I what I thought of as soon as I read that epic rant against John Scales and his England B cap was do you remember that incredible story which I think is one of the best things to happen in football in recent years which was the leaked WhatsApp audio message <laughs> about the island <laughs> camp uh, so this was to do with Keane's relationship when he was Martin O'Neill's assistant as Republic of Ireland manager with some of the younger players in the dressing room particularly Harry Arter I think and I think it started off with Keane basically having a go at Arter and a few others for not training I think the famous line is any chance to use training and he couldn't get into his head why these guys weren't training every mm. single day, even though he knew that they'd been given the day off by the physios because they weren't fit. And then John Walters takes exception to what Keane's saying to Archer and the others and confronts Keane about it, which is obviously not something that happens an awful lot to Roy Keane. And there's this incredible bit at the end of the WhatsApp, and I'm actually going to read out the transcript because I've got it in front of me. And it said, Roy brought up something about when they were at Ipswich, they had a falling out as well. He said, you're threatening me again, John, like you did at Ipswich. And Johnny was like, yeah, what? Are you going to be a shithouse again and send me my fine in the post rather than saying it to my face? <laughs> and uh, for me, that's just one of the best sentences ever uttered, never mind, <laughs> on a WhatsApp leaked WhatsApp audio from the island camp. And, it sounds uh, he, even he, better in your voice. It, it, oh, yeah, yeah. it sounds like you're read, reading out a quote on BBC News. <laughs> yeah. um, so any, any discussion of Keane's authenticity or not should, I think, always like bear in mind that there is ton- there are mountains of evidence that you know Keane is who he says he is he's not putting it on i feel like that there's going to be an eternal debate over the worth of punditry and what broadcasters should be providing for the main body of their viewership i don't think we're going to solve that problem on on this particular podcast i think entertaining punditry is still entertaining insightful punditry also adds something but one other issue i feel is creeping into the discussion about punditry and broadcasting is the issue of bias. The, the whispers uh, during the United Spurs game that Spurs fans were just, there was a lot of consternation that, that it was an Evera keen panel and there wasn't a Spurs representation on there. As if it would ever affect the result of a game, Charlie, that they don't have a, a Spurs representative, like a hardcore Spurs man on the panel to, to really provide their side of things. I guess that's probably where Jamie Redknapp steps in as a kind of roving reporter. He's just about Spurs, although he probably counts for about three clubs. Why does this matter? It's not news night. A lot of people felt that it was very United obsessed. So it was all framed through a United prism on the way that it would have been had it been on MUTV or something. So I, I think if you're, you know, if you're a Tottenham fan and you haven't watched a game, hasn't been a game for three months, and your yep. 30 million pound new signing scores a goal mm-hmm. in which he beats a couple of players, uh, 
yeah. you know, and, and puts you under lap. That's a really exciting moment and, and you want to okay. hear about it. To then not hear about that really at all, to only hear a, an epic rant about the goalkeeper's error, I can see why that might annoy you. And, and you know, you want to hear about your team. That's it. We, we are all... I, 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 no one's suggesting that that's going to affect the result, but you, we're all, you know, very focus on our own team we want to hear about that and i think you, you you know you just want that balance the vast majority of sky and also bbc pundits are ex man united and liverpool players and mm. that is i know that the, the, the both the clubs and also sky are kind of desperate to redress that balance but it's just it is a simple fact of when you have neville carragher sunes keen amongst your kind of main go-to guys that that is where the balance is going to be and i know that you know city in the past, Sky have, or I think the broadcasts have wondered how to get more Manchester City representation because, for obvious reasons, like there aren't that many like City greats from the sort of pre Abu Dhabi era yeah. who can talk who can talk about City well on TV. Like, remember, remember ages ago they got Mike Summerby on, you know, obviously like one of City's greatest ever players in his time, but he was slightly out of place in the mm. pun- in the studio, and it's also you know it's also a City employee. Whereas I actually think Richards has been a really I think Richards has probably been the best because I mean Richard Dunn has done a fair bit here and there but Richards has been the best kind of like articulator of you know what the city dressing room might be feeling at that particular point than anyone else they've had on yeah he's he's, he's a perfectly pitched in in terms of when he was playing I think he's a little a little bit more recent than some of the kind of existing sky pundits so I, I guess it's important to have just to have someone of broadcast quality who but who can also provide a genuine idea of what it must be like to be a footballer in in 2020 rather than 1997. Harry's sponsors football cliches a podcast brought to you by the athletic Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were sick and tired of overpriced razors. Jeff and Andy knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own factory. And now, by taking less profit, Harry's offers great quality products for a fair price. Their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. Um, guys, one facial hair point of note from the recent Premier League action was Andy Carroll coming bounding on in his usual way against Sheffield United at St James's Park sporting what I believe are known in facial hair circles as mutton chops Charlie um plenty pointed out that he looked like Jeff Keegan from Biker Grove why would anyone grow a beard in lockdown I can understand why hair would get long but why why grow a beard you can shave what's the issue yeah for me I I mean I'm always impressed by the people who who do thing you know do those creative things because I'm very much a Grow it quite long, shave it off. <laughs> grow it quite right. long, shave it off. That's that's my cycle. We got sent some Harry's products, and I use them, and they were excellent. And I haven't um, been fully clean shaven for a long time. Normally, I just kind of trim it down uh, to quite short. But uh, yeah, I, I thought, well, I've got good stuff, and it did feel really nice. As a listener to football cliches, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for three pounds ninety-five. Support our podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel, and travel blade cover, by going to harrys.com forward slash football cliches right now. That's harrys.com forward slash football cliches. The return of Neil Warnock, who the little managerial fruit machine in the championship has, has thrown up <laughs> Middlesbrough for him. There are so many kind of fairly predictable reactions to this, Jack, but they're predictable because I feel like this situation seems to rear its head all the time. I'm struggling to think of a kind of mid-ranking championship club that Neil Warnock hasn't managed. Here is a list of clubs he has somehow not managed. Stoke, West Bromwich Albion, 
Derby County. Sheffield Wednesday, who I was convinced he'd managed, even though he'd been at United, and he was strongly linked with Wednesday, but he didn't. He never got there. And I, I, I know it's predictable to to kind of link these managers because there are so many Championship level managers, and there are so many eternally Championship clubs, and I guess they're always going to dance with each other at one point or another. But the thing about Warnock, Jack, is that he claimed Palace would be his last job in two thousand seven. He claimed that Leeds would be his last job in two thousand twelve. Um, what keeps him coming back? Yeah, it's like uh, Sylvia Dante, isn't it? Just when I thought, just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. He's just a legend. I feel like there's quite a sort of anti-Warnock vibe, maybe amongst amongst young people, amongst young people who tweet about football. There's quite a lot mm. of condescension towards Neil Warnock. The guy is brilliant in what he does. He's been, you know, he, he got that terrible Cardiff squad up into the Premier League. He saved Rotherham yep. into the Championship. He was he got QPR promoted into the Premier League. He was probably the QPR's best manager of the modern era. That team with not much money has turned them into a fantastic team who dominated the Championship, played great football, got promoted, and then everything fell apart when he got sacked. He is really, really, really good at what he does. Middlesbrough have a far better chance of getting of surviving the Championship this year with him in charge than with Jonathan Woodgate. I am delighted to see him back. I, I think he's a, key, a crucial part of English football's furniture. You've done, I think... Uh you know a piece before on yo-yo players you think of like Robert Earnshaw and he he feels a little bit like that in the managerial world that he you know he's clearly very very good at championship level and Premier League I I think it's unfortunate for him he's never he's never kept the team up has he in the Premier League and obviously that Sheffield United season was the uh the Tevez one and all of Mm. and all of that where he was so unfortunate I think that must really um Really, that feels like his holy grail almost to, to prove that he, you know, he really can cut it at the very top level. Maybe one day he will. I do wonder. I think there's an element of the of the Roy Keane debate that we just had about Warnock. Part of him probably does want to retire and 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 leave a decent legacy behind it. But an, another part of him probably thinks, Do you know what, they want to see me on telly. They want to see me talking about football in that kind of particularly Warnockian way that he does. I don't think. Charlie, there's a manager out there who kind of oozes seen it all more than Warnock does. <laughs> but that I, I would probably offer up Steve Bruce, but he doesn't have the same kind of glint in his eye that Warnock does. And I just think Warnock knows that he he, he is well received when he starts talking, uh, either yeah. in kind of a live interview or just it was anywhere. I mean, um, I knew I knew of- this would happen when he was announced or, or sort of semi-announced as the Middlesbrough manager, and he went on Talk Sport and did an interview in it from his car, and I knew this following segment would happen, and it happened exactly as I would have imagined it. Um, I hadn't given it a thought until last night, but it's one of those... You, that's how things happen, it's that, that quickly, and Sharon didn't mind me coming up. I said to her, you know... She probably packed back. the bag, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I was a bit dubious when she did close the door quickly. <laughs> Is there anything more Warnock than those sort of 10 to 15 seconds of talk sport banter with uh, Simon Jordan and, and Jim White? I was going to say, so it's that, you know, you say about seeing it all, it's that kind of affected world weariness as well. Yes. It? It's just like, yeah. oh, yeah, that's this crazy game of football, though, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. When it, it's like, oh, but we wouldn't change it for the world. I, I just feel that. like we all we all own Warnock as a concept now. I feel like we all have a have a stakeholding in in Neil Warnock as a thing, just because it's all so familiar, Jack. Yeah, completely. I remember um, about ten years ago when I started the Independent, and Warnock, I think, had just taken over at Palace. And but you know, by then he was sixty one, and he did this column for the Indy every week, hmm. and it was really really good fun. It was all like tales of being a manager in the Championship and how hard it was. And even then, there was like a lot of. Oh, uh, you know, my wife's in Cornwall. How much? How long am I going to keep doing this for? I've seen it all. I've, I've, you know, I've managed all over the country, and but one day yeah. I'm going to give up. And you know, ten years on, the act is exactly the same. Uh, I can't. <laughs> 
you've got to respect the longevity. I think, you know, we were talking about Roy Keane earlier. I think Roy Keane is exactly the same in mm. public as in private, whereas I think with Neil Warnock, it is may, maybe a little bit more put on. Charlie, I mean, obviously, as a collective, we are drawn towards the kind of higher echelons of the game. We're, we're drawn towards the superstars and the big stories. But I, I think there's a comforting mundanity about whenever Neil Warnock takes a new job, because it's always at that level. It's uh, Middlesbrough was the place that he was going to go next. It, it was just written. I tweet about this quite a lot, that, that, the kind of reassuring mundanity of these types of moves. Here are some managers. I'm, I'm going to offer you a list of managers who have somehow <laughs> never managed Middlesbrough, who I, I, who I kind of consider as the QPR of the North. Um, Steve Bruce has never managed Middlesbrough. Mark Hughes has never managed M- Middlesbrough. Nigel Adkins, Sam Allardyce, Paul Clement, who I think will manage Middlesbrough in the future, so keep your eyes on that one. <laughs> Paul Jewell has never managed Middlesbrough, I don't think. Paul Lambert has never managed Middlesbrough. Gary Megson, Martin O'Neill has never managed Middlesbrough. And I was about to say that Gordon Strachan has never managed Middlesbrough, but he has. He has had a forgettable... 15 months or so with Middlesbrough, sort of 2009, 2010. Are you not as comforted by as me by this kind of how managers are just drawn to certain clubs and just how written it is in the stars? Like Tony Pulis managed there before, didn't he? And that felt like <laughs> yeah. one of those. So we've had this date from the beginning. One of those mm-hmm. where you are like, has this not happened already? Maybe Middlesbrough has all the ingredients to be a club like that because they... There's a kind of latent ambition about them. They, they feel like they should be higher. They've got a decent infrastructure. They've got a chairman who who seems like a relentless optimist. And yet people only really, people who don't support them, or maybe people who do support them, only really ever think about them as a, as a club who are somehow heading downwards in a kind of gentle kind of way. So maybe they all have, they have the ingredients of constantly looking for a manager at that level. They're kind of like a sleeping... Av- not a sleeping giant, maybe like a sleeping six-footer. Like they, they've got a mid-table Premier League mediocrity in them. If they mm. could just get the right appointments, maybe Middlesbrough suffer under this kind of eternal. I, I, don't, I'm, I hesitate to call it a myth, but I'm going to call it a myth, Jack. Of, of the northeast as a footballing hotbed. Are there any other footballing hotbeds? I can't think of any because. Yeah, I can think of. Where do they exist? So I think. Hot, I mean, I'd be very interested to hear your take on this. I think hotbed is often used in relation it's not just to do with like passion for the game in terms of support i think it's also Mm. used in terms in terms of like production of young talent yes absolutely so in so Mm. the one like the the other examples that spring to mind are one the ruhr valley in germany is a footballing hotbed in terms of passion because obviously you've got uh dortmund cologne Bayer leverkusen schalke dusseldorf all the rest of it but in terms, but I think now hotbed has moved towards areas which produce a lot of footballers. So the the one the, the three that spring to mind, and I know this from having you know anyone who writes football features at one point will write pieces about football hotbeds and why they produce so many good players. Uh, Heighton in Liverpool, Joey Barton, oh, yes. David Nugent. Uh, I don't think Gerard is from there, but there was definitely a time when because uh, I think Barton and Nugent are from more or less the same street, and there was definitely a time when. That was said to be the hotbed. The big hotbed now, and this is something I've written about at length, is South London. Mm. So, yeah. and, and particularly, so both Croydon, which is slightly different, but then also like Southwark, Lambeth. So, you know, a famous story is that Jaden Sancho and Reese Nelson grew up playing for the same uh, Southwark team at the London Youth Games, mm. playing together in Burgess Park. And then, of course, you've got Zaha, um, Joe Gomez, Adam Ola-Lukman, um, basically lots of other players who play currently in academies. I love these stories of 
all-conquering kind of kids teams like under nines level that contain kind of future Premier League stars. The famous one being sort of Senrab. Senrab, yeah. yeah. Can you imagine exactly. playing against Senrab when I you know. were 10? It must have been awful. Awful. Because not only were they good, but you knew that half of that team were going to go on to be successful sort of professional players. Yeah, so this Southwark Youth Games team was... Um, so the London Youth Games like is all the different boroughs of London produce a team. I think it's under nines, under 11s. And they right. play against the, the, the different boroughs. And Sancho, who's from sort of Kennington, and Rhys Nelson, who's from the Ellsbury Estate, which is like Old Kent Road, and Ian Perveda, who's now just joined Leeds United as well, from exactly oh, yeah. the same area. And they just walloped everyone <laughs> inside. And so... <laughs> Hello, I'm James Richardson, host of the Totally Football Show, now part of the Athletics Podcast Network. We're going to be here following all the action as the 2020 football season reaches its belated conclusion. And if you're an Athletics subscriber, you can now hear exclusive ad-free versions of our show on the Athletic app. And don't worry, if you're not a subscriber, you can still listen to us for free with the occasional word from our sponsor by searching for The Totally Football Show on Apple, Spotify and all the usual podcast places. The Totally Football Show with me, James Richardson, still totally free and now totally ad-free on The Athletic. I'd like to end this episode with something that's really been bothering me for probably years now. And um, uh, I want to know, Charlie, how far back in time do you think you would need to go to be a comfortable professional footballer. We've spoken about this before, haven't we? I mean, this is a, a recurring debate and it, it's a really hard one um, because... So the, so your theory is that it would have just been so much worse back in the day and that now we have the benefit of greater technical skill and that kind of thing. So we could do Cruyff turns and stepovers that would leave them sort of open-mouthed. I would wager that if you went back to, say, 1930s and you pulled off the odd feint or the odd Cruyff turn, that would be considered to be world-beating skill. But I think it would run deeper than that. Assuming that you are of decent footballing level, let's say sort of, you know, high-level amateur, I feel like the the cultural capital that you have absorbed as simply watching football over the last 20 years, the the, the little things that you would have watched footballers do that they wouldn't have been doing 50, 60, Mm. 70 years ago, I feel like that would give you an advantage. There are little technical caveats here. I'm saying that you would go back with your level of fitness, but you would then start training with that team. You would have to play with their equipment, so that I guess right. that would kind of that would stifle you for a bit. But we're not, it's not they're not punishing. You, you know, they're just a pair of boots and a set of shin pads, and the ball would be apparently heavier, but not really. All those sorts of things. Pitches wouldn't be very good, but you're used to that. You played on crap pitches when you were a kid. It wouldn't be completely anathema. Still do. Um, so I want you yeah. just give me a year. Give me a year. I think very quickly I think you need to find a sweet spot between it being back far enough that the game hasn't (laughs) been professionalised but also not too far back that physically you just get the shit kicked out of you so I think it it would have to be pre-Second World War because I think otherwise the standard would be too good so I reckon like 1930s maybe I'd stand a chance Charles Eccleshare of the 1930s who are you playing for sort of I don't know Royal someone or other Jack, I've got some data to present to you for this one. We put it to the potential listeners of this podcast about how far back in time they think they would need to be to be good enough to play professional football. 68.8% of respondents said they would have to go pre-war. So they're going back to the real rough days of professional football where they think that technically they could just about cut it. 14.7% said it would be the 1950s. So you're looking at the kind of WM era, I suppose, just before the kind of 
age of enlightenment for English football where they sort of got their ass kicked into gear by Hungary. I'm on board with that. I feel if I, if I got my fitness up, I reckon I could do a job in the 50s. I honestly do. 7.1% of people think the 60s, which is really pushing it. But... 9.4% of people, and I'm assuming this is an average cross-section of football-playing people, think that they could cut it in 1970s. That's amazing. Like, how many people, like, do, I mean, look, this sounds like a pub debate that could go on forever, but how many how many athletic readers do you think to think they're better than football at, like, Pele and Eusebio and George Best? <laughs> That's insane. I think my own answer to this question is probably the establishment of the FA in 1863, I am quite bad at football and also quite very out of shape. And I think I would have struggled, certainly, like in, in like the, the the turn of the 20th century. I think even You'd by have to then, learn the rules. Yeah, the game be- would be too good for me. Well, the thing is, I can I reckon I could actually learn rules quite quickly, and right. would I reckon I would also be good at the kind of the processes of setting up the FA and organising the first <laughs> the first ever FA Cup and right, codifying the rules. I think I would have been really good at that. So while my You're football bigging sk- up your administrative skills. This yeah, so while, while my football skills, as anyone who's seen me play, are basically zero, I think if I'd been in the right room at 1863, I would have been identified as the right sort of chap to uh, lead the <laughs> FA to lead the FA on it, this exciting new era of yeah. organised football. And as such, I might have got like a run out at the end of a game against yeah. uh, against a different university or a different school or whatever. I would probably get some hilarious nickname like Bluter Pitbrook or Blopper Pitbrook, and I would just kind of get to waddle around waddle around kicking people. I think you're doing yourself a slight disservice here. I would put your administrative potential administrative skills at. I reckon you could have set up one of the European competitions. That's that's how highly I think of you as a potential oh, wow. administrator. So uh, I, I hope you leave with your morale boosted from this podcast. As an aside, my answer used to be, uh, I feel like I've mellowed as I got older. One Christmas, uh, I told my brother that I reckon I could have gone back to Mexico 1986 and stopped Maradona scoring that goal, <laughs> just on the basis of how slow Peter Reed was running, but haven't probably haven't factored in how hot it may have been in Mexico City on that day. But I'm glad we thrashed that out because it's something that's been bothering me for a while. As for the 9.4% of those who could, who thinks they could have cut it amongst Bobby Charlton and George Besh in the 70s, dream on. Anyway, thanks everybody. We'll see you next week. <laughs>